0: Welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, a series of conversations with the artists, labels, and promoters who are shaping the electronic music landscape. I'm Jordan Rothline, and I'm the tech editor at Resident Advisor. Legendary may be the most overused word in the music journalist's phrasebook, but for David Rodigan, it's entirely appropriate. He's lived reggae music and has some truly amazing stories to show for it. His obsession started when, as a young mod, he first heard ska music's infectious beat, It turned professional in the late 70s, with a job hosting the UK's first legal reggae radio show. Since then, he's interviewed artists as revered as Bob Marley, emerged victorious at some of the world's biggest sound clashes, and received an MBE for services to broadcasting, a distinction he dedicates to reggae music itself. Rodigan has always been huge with reggae fans, but he recently found an entirely new audience through vocal cameos on dubstep records and his sound clash performances on YouTube. Ahead of the release of his masterpiece compilation, Rodigan sat down with Stephen Titmus to discuss his long, an ever-eventful career.
1: So David, when was your first contact with West Indian Music?
2: In the 1960s, 1964 to be precise, because there was a song called My Boy Lollipop by Millie. And it was featured on a television show called Ready Steady Go. And it was the number one TV show. It was on a Friday evening. And everyone watched it. James, you saw James Brown, The Stones, The Beatles, you name it, you know. And she sang this amazing ska song called My Boy Lollipop. I love the crazy backbeat. I love the feel of it um, and that was my introduction to this music from Jamaica which was referred to as Blue Beat because one of the recording labels that is, a lot of the music was issued on was Blue Beat Records. By the summer of 67 I was completely hooked on it because I was 16 and it had then developed a, a phenomenal following amongst young mods and the key players were Prince Buster, the Scatterlights, the Wailers. Um, it was just this crazy wonderful dance music with great vocals and tremendous energy so was it what was the effect on
1: you on hearing these records at the first time you said it was an obsession can you remember the first time you heard a Scar record for example
2: one of the first records that really got me going i mean my boy lollipop was just a great pop record and and it it was indicative of this Scar beat was actually recorded in london um one of the first songs that really got me going was Phoenix City by Roland Alfonso. Another one was Prince Buster and the All Stars with Al Capone's Guns Don't. And the irony is now that in 19, that was 1965, 65 something. Now in 2013, rolling into 2014, I can play One Step Beyond. Da, da, da. And a thousand young people, no one over twenty-three, goes go da 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 I can bring the faded da da da. da. And they all know the melody. Why? Because the specials did it. I think it was the specials or Mad- no, madness. No, madness. Um and it was originally by Prince Buster. So there was another song, One Step Beyond. I think it was on the flip side of of Prince of Al Capone. So why did it why did it turn me on? It was great to dance to. It was so infectious. I defy anyone to listen to a ska record and not want to get up and start shaking a leg. It's just it's got that wonderful impetus and it's it's back to front music. It's 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 not the right way around. It's the crazy backbeat and some great vocals too.
1: Why do you think um, reggae music connects with young audiences in the, in that way? Because obviously youngsters who are coming to see you that weren't even born when or well, maybe their parents weren't even born when those records were made.
2: I think it connects with young people because it is a spiritual music. It is a protest music. It is the music of the streets. It's a music which has always spoken out against injustice. Um, I mean, there are obviously wonderful, beautiful love songs as well. But primarily with its Rasta connection to truths and rights and the liberty of of, of an ital world as opposed to Babylon, which is rejected by the Rastafarianism. Uh, that we are living in Babylon, or they are living in Babylon, and they reject society as, as such, so the, um, their diet, uh, vegetarian, and uh, their lifestyle is is not associated with um, name brands and so on. It, it's, it's very purist and, and what they call ital. That has a connection with young people, I believe, and always has. The music of dub is in itself revolutionary, was and still is, it breaks the rules. It breaks things down. It impacts them. It turns them into subsonic musical experiences. King Tubby being the master, and Lee Perry being, were just one of a number of great Jamaican recording engineers who turned the business around when they created dub music. Neil Fraser, the Mad Professor, here in London, being another example of, of of somebody who broke down barriers, and that's what the music has always done. It's There are some great vocals. There are some great pro... Get up, stand up, bring the fader down, stand up for your rights. Um, Peter Tosh, Equal Rights and Justice. Obama used a line from that speech in one of his presidential speeches. We want equal rights and we want justice. Reggae music speaks for the underprivileged and always has done. It's the music of the ghettos of Western Kingston where life is tough and hard and that music speaks for those people. And in doing so, speaks to the world.
1: Well, just getting back to you for a second, though, and perhaps not everyone knows this, but your early career was an, an actor, was it not?
2: <laughs> yes. Theatrical background, dear boy. Yeah, it was. I I was in school plays and loved acting. And when I left school and it was time to go to college, I wanted to go to drama school and everyone said, oh, you can't do that. Um, although my English teacher said I should. Um, and I studied business uh, economics, and that was a miserable year. Um, so in nineteen seventy one, I stopped my nineteen seventy one I stopped my um, economics course, and I auditioned for drama schools. and got a place um, at East fifteen in Stratford, and also a place at Bruford College of Spetran Drama, uh, which was a dual teaching course as well. And I took that, and I was delighted to have done so i was very fortunate and i i love that course and i went in then into repertory theater as an acting stage manager um it's called an asm so you were you were an actor but you're also assistant stage manager and i learned my craft and i worked in the theater and a bit of telly and film for many many years um but all the time i was collecting this music from jamaica
1: just to kind of clarify, it seems like you, you know, you had some quite interesting roles in your acting career.
2: Like Doc- Doctor Who was one of them, was it not? Or yeah, um, I'd filmed for the BBC a, a show called Shackleton um, about the explorer and a Shackleton, and um, I played the part of Frank Wild, his um, first, com- his commanding first commanding officer, um, and the chap, one of the assistant directors on the project on the film. Um, said, oh, I'm directing four episodes of Doctor Who. I'd like you to play Broken Tooth to Joan Sims, who's the queen of the underground, and you'll be her captain of her guard, commander of her guard. And I said, okay, I'll do it because I want to get inside the TARDIS. Um, And it was a great shoot, a lot of fun. And yes, we did film a lot of it in Television Center, and yes, we did run around the same corridor, and they shot it from different angles. And yes, my head was blown off and My brains are splattered all over the place in the final episode. It was um, Trial of a Time Lord. Colin Baker was the doctor at the time. YouTube. YouTube that right now. (laughs) Yeah, and I had a lot of hair and a nasty set of broken teeth that that were made especially for me by a dentist in Harley Street. And I also played uh, Inspector Forbes of New Scotland Yard in Sherlock Holmes. Um, I'm in one episode of that, um, which apparently is now on YouTube. And... um, I also did the whole Guinness campaign in 1980, 81, for Takeaway Guinness with the Toucan that was on television. I couldn't go into a pub. Hello, mate. Yeah, I'll have a Toucan. I'll have a Guinness, you know. Um,
1: so, yeah. <laughs> so when did the hobby of playing records turning to a vocation of the DJ broadcaster?
2: Well, that rolled out in 78 because there was a radio show on Sunday lunchtimes on BBC Radio London called Reggae Time. The presenter was leaving and they were looking for a new presenter. Um, I auditioned by default. My girlfriend at the time um, wrote a letter on my behalf requesting an audition. And I got this letter saying, Please come to your audition, BBC Radio London in Marleyburn High Street. I said, oh, What's this? She said, oh, I wrote it. So I went down and I auditioned, and they stopped the interview after 15 minutes and said, oh, very interesting. You obviously know the music and you care about it, Mr. Rodigan. It was the cut. producer was named names with the producer's name was David Carter. He said, "But I'm afraid we're looking uh, we're looking for a black presenter, Mr. Rodigan." So I'm terribly sorry. And what actually happened was they played my audition tape along with the a number of other audition tapes to Jamaican producers, record company people, a number of them, who obviously they knew through being a radio station, and apparently. Um, they said you should use this guy, um, along with Tony Williams. So we co-hosted, and then we did one week on, one week off, and that was in 1978. So that was the beginning of my career as a radio DJ, which I found difficult at first, because I'm a radio DJ, the essence of being good radio DJ is to be yourself. Of course, I'd spent years being an actor, wondering that perhaps I should now be a radio DJ, an actor trying to act the part of being a radio DJ, which of course was completely wrong. And it it was not, I mean, all you had to do, in inverted commas, all, was to be yourself, which often um, feels perhaps a little difficult um, in a public media space like radio. But that was the essence of of broadcasting, being yourself.
1: So it's interesting that it was almost a kind of inverted racism towards, you know, you being a white presenter. Um, Has that kind of um, attitude ever followed you anywhere, breaking into Jamaican culture? Obviously, it's jamaican music industry is very of its own world and very idiosyncratic you know as a as a white british man coming into that has that ever been
2: a bit of a challenge or people surprised i think people have been surprised without doubt particularly in jamaica when they first saw me um, and in london when they first saw me do my first public gig which is in wilson at the london apollo club and I think I was the only white guy in the house. And there was a stunning silence when I walked on stage, I can tell you, because they presumed I, I i was a black Londoner because they listened to me on Radio London playing this music. And they just presumed, you know, I didn't speak with a Jamaican accent, but many black people don't speak with a Jamaican accent. They speak with a British accent because they're born in London or Birmingham or Sheffield, whoever. Um, so it was, yes, um, surprising for some people. Um, I think the advantage I had was that People couldn't see me. They could only hear me. And because I really do care about this music, and I I have a passion for it and a knowledge of it, when they heard me talking about it and playing records that I thought were good, that they thought were good too, I passed the audition in their ears, but not in their eyes because they hadn't seen me. Um, And I think by the time I started doing public appearances, it was too late to judge me based on what I looked like because they'd already made up their minds about the sort of person I was based on what I was saying and doing on the radio. I mean, back in the sixties, I used to listen to Johnny Walker on Radio Caroline, Kenny Everett. I mean, when I first heard these DJs, I had no idea what they looked like, but I either liked them or I didn't like them based upon how they sounded and what the songs they played. It's an audio experience, just like this. You can't see me, but you can hear me. Am I making sense? Am I talking a load of rubbish? Am I playing crap music? In which case, the audience is long gone, baby.
1: So was that radio show the first legal reggae show in the UK or had there been ones before that?
2: That was the first legal reggae show on radio, BBC Radio London. I remember listening to it in the early 70s. Um, It it had been going a number of years.
1: So your tenure at the show and... And perhaps your later career at Capital FM, you you seem to get some of the most amazing pioneers of the music onto your show. You know, interviews such like you know Bob Marley being one of them. Of course, that must have been something special to interview Bob Marley.
2: Yeah, that was a big coup, um, and I was very very fortunate. Um, I actually was it was a Friday afternoon. It was 1980. I was going up the stairs at Island Records in St Peter's Square, and he was coming down the stairs with a couple of Rasta friends and some management and Island Records. And I seized the moment. I seized the moment. I I said, Bob Marley, you know, um, I'm David Rodigan. I, I work on Capital Radio. Um, would you please, please be my guest tomorrow night on the radio, please? And it wasn't the correct procedure. I hadn't gone through the necessary pecking order to get permission. But I just asked him point blank. There were some Rasta brethren with him from London, and they nodded. Their seal of approval was given. And Bob Marley then said to me, do you want to hear something new I've just recorded? Uh, yes, I said. And we went into the listening room at Island Records. And he put a cassette out of his jeans jacket pocket and pressed play. I was sitting in the listening room with Bob Marley and Aston family man Barrett. I, I said, no one will believe this. And the song was, "Don could you be loved? And he asked me, what do you think of that? What do you think of the mix? Do you think that's a good radio mix, a good FM or or AM in American radio? I'm in a room with Bob Marley. He's asking me what I think of the mix. I told him I thought the mix was great for stereo FM. He said, good, you get a world exclusive tomorrow. I'll bring the master tape in. And he did. He brought the tape in and put it on the reel-to-reel the following night. And it was from eight till nine, a one-hour special on Capitol Radio. And just before the news, we played a world exclusive from Bob Marley and the Wailers. Dun, 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 dun. Could you be loved? Amazing. Bob Marley asking your opinion. Yes.
1: I mean, come on. It doesn't get better than that. I'm afraid it doesn't. <laughs> so, from your early days, you know, your first experiences as a SCAR to your period as a broadcaster, there was quite a lot of changes in the reggae movement. Um, could you just give a brief history of that? Because it's a really
2: interesting. Change in in styles of music and and, and lineage. The lineage is long and deep. It's great heritage, Jamaican popular music. It started in the late fifties on sound systems, not on radio. The sound systems were enormous mobile discotheques, phenomenally large speakers and big heavyweight amplifiers, all handmade. And they toured the island with sound systems slung up on the back of trucks. They would arrive in villages and small towns and set up in the market square or an open lawn, and they would play the music. The music was then rhythm and blues, which then evolved into ska music. It was a, a it was a development of rhythm and blues, boogie woogie, and they started recording it in the radio stations. That's one of the first songs, the original recording was often done at the radio stations because they have facilities to record big bands and so on, and. The Scatterlights were the key players because they created these fantastic instrumentals and the name Ska Stuck, Ska vuvi, um it was just a name to describe the beat, ska, ska, and it was highly infectious, tremendous tempo, very danceable. So that was early 60s to 64, 65. By the summer of 66, the beat slowed down to a beat they called Rock Steady. Some people say it was a very hot summer, they wanted something cooler to dance to. But the beauty of the rock steady movement, which is 66 through to 68, was that it allowed the music to focus on the harmonies and voices. The beat was cooler. It was more sparse, little breaks of horns, but. but <laughs> we produce the best in sounds. Feel good dung 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 Feel good. It was so cool. It was wonderful, and it was great to dance to. You had to be a good dancer to dance to it because it was a much slower pace. By '68, they increased the, the the tempo. Reggae kicked in, <timer> Dave <sharp adore vaya> and 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 and, and the ball pumping away on the organ so the tempo increased and then by 1970, 71, 72 this new roots rock reggae kicked in Um and also dub music chasing hard on that 74, 75 dub had arrived where engineers started experimenting with vocals taking them out, creating echo and loops and dub music was born. So you had the what was also known as the Rockers period. Chankt, chank, chang. Augustus Pablo epitomized that sound uh with King Tubby, where it was dubbed, and and then you had the evolution of Rastafarianism in terms of its influence on the music. So you had deep cultural songs, the Whalers, Culture, Joseph Hill, the Abyssinians, um Burning Spear, Peter Tosh and so on. Big names, big songs, big production, horn arrangements, 16-track. The music was growing, it was fuller, it was bigger, it was heavier, um, and it had a lot more to say vocally. So we're into roots rock reggae now, 70s. Late 70s into the early 80s, a new movement started called Dance hall. It's a very loose term given to music that was primarily made for the dance hall, because it evolved from the dance hall. Sound system DJs playing live. Imagine Disclosure doing a disco set, okay? Somebody comes up onto the mic, Disclosure are playing some beats, and somebody starts, you know, John Newman starts singing over some beats that they've made. That's what happened in Jamaica in the late 70s and early 90s, early 80s. So you would have a singer, come, bong, bong, witty bong, bong, witty bong, eco mouse, you know? Early Sunday morning, gun just smuggling. Bong bong, bong, op, 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 op. People would scream forward, forward, pull up, pull up. The engineers were listening to this. The producers were listening to this. Hang on. dung bum, dum star. bum bum. You know, Star lag Rhythm, Sister Nancy, what, uh, bam. Rhythms were born, versions were created, and the next day, these artists were going to the studio for Cox and for Winston... F- r- um, uh, techniques records, whoever Channel One, and voice what they did the night before, which got forward in the dance. The music that was being made and played in the dance started to be recorded in the studios and played back in the dance. And then the influence of soca kicked in, and calypso, dong, dung 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 dung, and dance hall was born out of the 80s into the 90s. And you had this dance hall movement with the bogle and all these styles of dressing, outrageous girls dancing on their head, very much the focus being on having a good time, um, not too deep and heavy, just um, musically exciting, generous v- vibe in terms of tempo. And that was then the advent of dance hall. And then you had, in the 80s, also what's now referred to as the digital revolution, ton, ton, no, 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 Slang it epitomized what many now regard to have been the death of reggae music. Some people say that it was the advent of dance or digital music killed roots rock reggae. Um, There's a certain amount of truth in that because it became more of a focus on the tempo and... The fact that people could knock rhythms out themselves on a, on a rhythm Cassia rhythm box meant that you didn't have to employ musicians and so on. So more people made a, had, a, had a go at making music, some of which was good and some of which was not so good upon reflection years later. Um, so you saw that movement. So if you reflect back on it, 50s, American doo-wop, rock and roll, they didn't like rock and roll. They liked rhythm and blues. They liked Fats Domino. They liked that flavor. So they started to try and do their own version of that boogie woogie. And that slowly turned into 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 ska. Ska was the first real period, although there'd been Mento and Calypso, of course, with acoustic guitars and percussion and folk songs. But uh, essentially, ska into rock steady, into reggae, into rockers, into dub, into dancehall, into the revivalist movement, which is now called the Roots Rock the Roots Reggae Revival Movement, which we've now seen coming out of Jamaica in the last two years.
1: So when was your first trip to Jamaica?
2: My first trip to Jamaica was January 1979. It was for me a musical pilgrimage. It was amazing.
1: What did you do? What was oh, the first thing you what did? What didn't I
2: do? I mean, a day and night, I was in recording studios, hanging out, gate-crashing studios. I had a passport in the sense that I was known by some producers because I was already working on Radio London. And they knew I'd been on Radio London for just over a year. So, well, actually four months. But there was some like, you know, news travels fast. Um, A lot of people didn't know who the hell I was, but that didn't matter either. Um, I was so passionate about the music. So I was hanging out in record shops, you know, um, but primarily I was gate-crashing studios um, and um, having fun.
1: So I I read that a real turning point in your career was when you made your first appearance on um, Jamaican radio.
2: Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because it sounds like a really interesting and and quite exciting story. It was a very exciting story. I was at Capital Radio and I went to Jamaica to record a special for Capital Radio. And they said that they'd never seen so many Jamaican reggae artists in one place at one time. Um, It was literally like a doctor's surgery. They were in the car park at JBC Radio 1 waiting to be interviewed for my show. I was very honoured. I went to a lot of work to make it happen we made an agreement with JBC Radio one in Jamaica that we would use their facilities and we did so so we recorded a number of interviews and radio programs the engineers at JBC helped me prepare those programs and edit them all up and send them back as tapes which are broadcast on Capital radio one of the presenters one of the DJ one of the people I had on that show apart from you know Derek Harriet and you I mean all the artists um was a man called Barry Gordon a.k.a. Barry G. the Boogeyman, truly 21st century, pace setter on JBC Radio 1, Barry G. Wow, spread on the scatter, is getting hotter, this is Barry G. It's me doing my impressions of Barry and some of his jingles thrown. JBC Radio 1, Barry G, truly 21st century, pace setter on JBC Radio 1. You know, and Barry G.'s catchphrase was, spread out and scatter, it's Barry G. the Boogeyman, can't you see we're getting hotter? And it was a a lovely style of broadcasting. It was, as you would imagine, it had that Jamaican flavor. It had American influence as well because they used to, obviously there was a, and and many of them were trained at the BBC in London. So it was a very interesting fusion. But he was one of my guests and he presented a news desk, you know, the top 10 records in Jamaica. Afterwards, he said, you know what? I must reciprocate. Why don't you come on my show on Saturday night? I did. And at eight o'clock during the news, he turned to me and said, do you know what? Instead of you just, doing a news desk and playing the top five records in London. Let's do a clash. And I said, thanks for the warning, Barry. And uh, that clash started at eight o'clock. It finished at 2 a.m. It was a six-hour radio clash. And it was the talk of Jamaica. Because in those days, radio was everything in Jamaica. And television was not terribly important. You couldn't get television in received in certain parts of the country of the island, but you could get radio, and people had cassettes and tape, and they recorded, recorded, recorded. And to this day, you can still buy cassettes of those clashes online from real hardcore cassette freaks <laughs> who collect them, and that's where it started. Uh, it was a clash with Barry G on JBC Radio One. One of the biggest clashes was was this was the one in '85 referred to as the slang teng clash because we just played how many cuts of don on 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 So what are the rules because people might
1: not know the rules of a of a reggae sound clash.
2: Rules are that you you cannot repeat anything that your rival has played unless it is a counteraction. So if your rival plays don on slang teng, you can play another cut of the slang teng rhythm don You can play but it must be different. So it must have a different vocalist on it. Now, that's at the very basic level of clashing. The idea is that you listen to what your competitor is playing and you react. You say, you have just played that Gregory Isaacs. I'm going to play a Gregory Isaacs and I'm going to play one that I think is better than your one. So the element is competition. The essence is contest. And as Barry Gordon said to me during the news, when he said, let's do a clash, he said, Jamaicans love contest. They'll bet on two crabs crossing the road, which one will get to the other side of the road first? They'll bet on that. So he was right. It it made it more interesting because it was a contest. So listeners started making up their minds as to who was playing the better selection and was that Gregory better than the last Gregory? Or you're going to play a Gregory Isaacs on that rhythm? I'm going to play Johnny Osborne on the same rhythm, counteracting your Gregory Isaacs. So that's how it. That's the essence of clashing. Um. At the next level, and we're talking about Premier League now, sound system clashing, every record you play must have your name in it. So you'd have to go to Disclosure and get them to get John Newman to sing back. Was John Newman on Disclosure's Latch? Yeah, of course he was. So John Newman would have to sing back Latch, but he'd have to put my name in the song, proving that it's exclusive to me.
1: So when we're talking about, you know, a grade reggae stars here, you yeah. know, the, the best in the game. Yeah. Um, how do you convince someone like, for example, Beanie Man to? to because it became say your a business. Yeah. It
2: became a business. Initially, it wasn't. It was, can you do me a favor? And then, and it started this business of having your name cut into a dub, started in the mid 80s. And it meant that previous to that, the sound systems would be playing in Jamaica <clears throat> and Beanie Man would come on the mic and freestyle live. Ecomouse, Bounty Killer. Some wise DJs said, you know what? We can want that one step better. Get these guys in the studio to voice these rhythms, saying that this can only be played by Stone Love and this is Beanie Man. So even if they don't turn up, we've got Beanie Man in the dance, kind of. And that was the next step of dub plate cutting. Then it went to another level where every sound wanted dub plates from every artist calling their name, proving that they were exclusive. It's like you know, designer wear gone crazy. Uh, it's not just designer wear; it's this customized, a one-off can only be played by you. You want that? You got to pay for it, baby. It became an industry. It is now an industry, and it is now a very important part of the Jamaican recording industry because vinyl sales have dropped right off. There's hardly any vinyl being pressed, so record sales are not a source of income for artists. Dub plate voicing is, and there are now studios in Jamaica that only specialize in voicing dubs for example tell studio is one of the most famous um, as in william tell um, the engineer there has all the contacts with all the artists there's a set price different price range for different types of dubs combinations solo you name it it can be done if you have the money it is now an industry and sound boys who do not have a decent selection of dub plates In other words, customized tracks with their name spoken in it or sung in it are not rated as highly as those that do. So what's your most treasured dub plate that you have? I'd say probably one of my most treasured dub plates, well, not probably, without doubt, is Prince Buster singing Rudigan is a hard man for dead. And in Jamaica, that means... It's based on a song, you lick him up, you kick him down, in bounce right back, he's a hard man for dead. It's a story of a man who was buried and rose from the coffin, and he wasn't buried. He said, I haven't died yet. And in sound contest, it meant that I could play that, even when you thought you've killed me, I can play this in the one for one, I'm not dead yet. I'm a hard man to kill, hard man for dead. And he only ever voiced it for me. He never voiced any dub plates for anybody else. I was very honored. So that's one of my favorites. Another one is um Supercats Don Dada, which he never voiced for anybody else. Another one is um dub Plates Playing in the Ghetto Tonight by Johnny Osborne. Very famous dub.
1: And some of your clashes, you know, you've done so many, but um some of them are literally, you know, legendary. Like the one in 1985 in Brooklyn Empire seems to be the one that, you know, that's ridiculous. It's out of
2: control, the ridiculous. I mean, I'll never forget that one as long as I live. Barry G and I, we arrived in it. They sent a limo, and when we arrived, we saw this building, the Brooklyn Empire. But we didn't realize it was Brooklyn Echo. We thought it was a rock venue because there were all these people queuing outside, four deep off the wall in the snow, round the round the round the block, and we said, "Oh, what what you know? What's going on there?" I said, and the project said, "You are." Now, this is me and Barry G. I'm a radio DJ from London. He's a radio DJ from Kingston, Jamaica. And we've been flown to New York. And we're about to go into the Brooklyn Empire to see thousands of people inside, never mind those outside trying to get in, to see two radio DJs clash. That's ridiculous. But that night was phenomenal. We were so nervous... Both he and I. I mean, they had to have security to get us through the crowd. It was ridiculous. But it was an amazing night, 85. That's and that's the night I played Ring the Alarm, the Tenor Sword dub plate which just ripped the place apart. There was a New York
1: one as well, was there? Apparently? Yes, dark yeah.
2: spread in the news. Go, you've done your homework. Roddy Guns in Brooklyn. He wants to be a part of it. New York, New York. If Roddy can kill Barry G here, he can kill him anywhere. It's up to you. New York, New York, Maxi Priest. So, what's the secret to winning a sound
1: clash? Then, what
2: the secret is, um, I think, a sense of humour. Um, the secret is having a game plan, outwitting your adversaries, and hopefully winning the audience over so they vote for you not to come out. It's like Big Brother on stage. You know, you don't get eliminated. And if you don't get eliminated, you're eventually between you and the other sound system in what's referred to as the one for one. where you play one, he plays one, you play one, he plays the best of 10, and you win or lose accordingly. The idea is to get to that point, and that, that means you've got to be, you've got to be creative. you've got to come up with good ideas in terms of voicing specials. You've got to come up with good speeches that counteract your adversary, uh, adversaries. And um, what I use often is humor with sketches and. You know, like going to a funeral parlor and and uh, choosing a coffin for my... And using actors to play the part of the guy in the funeral parlor. Good afternoon, sir. May I help you? Opening the door. Mm, welcome to the Bond funeral parlor. Yes, I'd like to um, buy a coffin. Of course, sir. May I interest you in our velvet and silk? It's got a glass top. I, It's rather special. Yes, um, yes, I think I'll take that one. You will, sir? Thank you. And the name of the deceased? Ricky Trooper. Ricky Trooper of Kilimanjaro Sound. Of Kilimanjaro Sound. Yes, of course, sir. And then the organ's playing in the background. So you play that as a spoof, a sketch, you know, a sketch, and the place collapses. I mean, just using humor. That was what it was all about for me and trying to find things like that. And I think people would agree that that's probably one of my trademarks that has given me, you know, to the point where sound systems would get, try and get me to voice things for them in other clashes. Didn't he? And I had to stop, you know, I did every scenario you could think of, you know, detectives, news flashes, you know, horse racing from Newt, from Kaimana's Park in Kingston, <laughs> down to the final flack and it's bodyguard. gone. It's stop, you know.
1: So you almost fell back on the acting in a weird way. way. Yeah, exactly. No,
2: I did. Exactly that.
1: But speaking of humor, um, this is one of, you know, I've boned up on some of the anecdotes, but one of the funniest ones, and it seems unbelievable that I heard from you,
2: is that Tom Jones turned up to one of your gigs and started singing reggae versions of his songs. It was from, uh, we have Wyclef Jean to thank for that. Wyclef Jean is a big fan of Jamaican clash culture. And I got to meet him and he voiced some very good dubs for me. Thank you, Wycliffe. He's a big fan of the music genre and the culture. And for me, one of the highlights of my career was, in, I think it was 1990. No, no, I can't remember the year. But I was, I'd just arrived in Boston, Massachusetts. No, Hartford, Connecticut. And I was on stage and I looked into the wings and I couldn't believe it. I saw Beast. Beast is the personal bodyguard of Wyclef Jean and he just beckoned me to come over I was clashing Mighty Crown it was January 2000 they were the world champions they just won world clash in November, October of of, um, of 99 so they, they ruled supreme and I was clashing them in Hartford, Connecticut it was a complete roadblock and I walked into the wings and they were playing the, around. And I said, "What Beast, what are you doing here? And he said, look behind the door. Behind the door in the offstage dressing room was a man dressed in a head-to-foot fur coat, like something out of, you know, a New York gangster movie. You know? It was Wycliffe Sean. I said, Wycliffe, what are you doing here? He said, I've brought a dub. He said, do you know what the number one record in America is? I said, no, I've just flown in. He said, it's called Maria Maria by R&B the product. And it's Carla Santana. I said, oh, congratulations. He said, yeah. And he lifted his jacket and took out a dub plate that looks just like one of these acetates, he said, play track two It's customized to kill mighty crown. I said, you're joking. He said, no, just go and play it. And I walked back on the stage and in a one for one, I queued it up. I was playing it blind. I had I, I didn't know the song. I didn't, I'd never heard it. The forward was like a tidal wave. It came from the back. And this is a big venue of the of the West Indian Centre, Hartford, Connecticut, like a tidal wave. Mighty Crown were dead. Dead in the water. They started packing away immediately. It, it it took the night. It took the clash. Mighty Crown, to be fair to them, went and cut it back themselves and played it against me uh, a few months later and beat me in New York. That's another story. Big up Mighty Crown. Um, But, it was one of those special nights um, when I couldn't believe how fortunate I was. It was. It is a brilliant dub. Spin forward. I used to do a Wednesday night residency in West London at the what was then called Subterranea. And I got a phone call on the morning of one Wednesday, and it was from Wycliffe. He said, I'm in London. Uh, put me on the guest list tonight, plus one. I said, Cleff, you're welcome. it? no, and plus one. The plus one, it was Beast, and for bit, but in he came onto the stage, and he said, "Here's a CD. Give it to the sound engineer to play." Beast climbed up onto the the gallery, literally like swung up there, and gave it to the engineer. And Wycliffe, I then said, ladies and gentlemen, we have a very special surprise guest, because we didn't have any CD players on the desk, on the on the on the on the on the, on the stage, just playing vinyl. All the way from uh, New York City, would you please welcome Wycliffe Sean of the The Place went crazy. He comes on, ladies and gentlemen, it's Wycliffe. What's up? One love, yeah, my bread dream, you because know, he loves reggae. <laughs> he said, hey, something special for you. Engineer, press play. And it was the heavenless rhythm. And then he said, I've got a special surprise guest. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Tom Jones. And Tom Jones walked onto the stage at the Subterranean to a house full of Jamaican reggae fans. And the song that was playing it was a medley. It's not unusual to kill a sound. And it was As the Road Rise to Meet You, a sound boy. It was um, uh, Green, Green Grass of Home on dub. So Wycliffe had rewritten the lyrics. As a soundboy wants to meet you in the sound, you know, it's all about the killing of soundboys. It was a medley of three Tom Jones hits on this, on the, uh, Tom Jones singing these dance soundboy lyrics for Wycliffe. That's absolutely, I mean, it just, the place went crazy. That is just unbelievable. If yeah. I
1: said that was a dream to someone, they said, say, oh, what have no. you been eating? Lay off the cheese. Yeah. You know, it's just too much. And we
2: met Tom and he said, oh, I used to live around the corner from you when I first came up from Wales. We had some nice little birds around here in those days. <laughs> Great. Pick up yourself, Tom.
1: Amazing. So we've talked a lot about, you know, kind of older West Indian music, <sighs> but, you know, it's completely unfair to say that that's all you're about. You know, you're really about new music as yeah. well. You know, what gets you excited about new music today?
2: I think we're living in very exciting times because we've seen technology move on in such a way that um, I've witnessed young rhythmic producers create rhythms on their laptops which defy logic or science. You would not think it would be possible to create this sound. Um, Although I was critical of elements of digital music recording in the beginning because it was so basic. Clearly, so much has happened and there's been a vast movement forward in terms of technology. Um, so therefore, we have all witnessed um, the the phenomena of dubstep, which is a development. We've seen the phenomena of jungle, which w- couldn't have happened without reggae because reggae was such an influence, especially in samples. And we've seen the phenomena of, 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 of dubstep rolling into uh, to trap and so on. But what excites me is that we're seeing a new movement of young West Indian, Jamaican, and European rhythmic creators, uh, rhythm producers, and singers. The new roots revival movement in Jamaica with Kabaka Pyramid and Chronics epitomizing this. Jan Nine, she's an amazing talent. Um, the Raging Fire Band, and so on. So we're seeing this new movement from there, which is not dancehall. Uh, it is conscious lyrics. It is it. These are songs of substance um, with great arrangements. Often played live, and that's another development we're seeing. Chronics is the most exciting new young recording artist out of Jamaica. He will not do playback, he only performs live with his own band. Wonderful! You got uh, the new Kingston Band in New York again playing live. So, Pentatush Band out of Kingston playing live. Black, R- the, 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 was the name of the band, I forget, but um, so w- we're seeing this movement and we're seeing a return also to elements of rubber dub, the, the 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 strength of the bass, the strength of the drop, the weight, lyrical content. And we're also seeing fascinating elements of other music being woven into that. So if, if I use as an example, Show and Prove, um, My People, is an element of a song which has a reggae drop in it. It also has a trap feel and a, an element of dubstep is in it. We're seeing this fusion evolve, and I think it's very exciting. Many young producers and artists with lots of ideas.
1: Did the first time you heard dubstep, say 10 years ago, did you immediately make that connection to reggae music, or was it something that came later?
2: No, I immediately made the connection to reggae. As soon as I heard it, I could hear and feel the influence of of Jamaican dub music without doubt. It was immediate. Um, I didn't like all of it. I liked some of it.
1: And it seems like you've been embraced by that community, certainly, you know, like producers like Casper, Breakage, sampling your name, which is ironic seeing as you've gone around getting other people yeah. to say your name in, in tunes after all those years um, but it, yeah it seems like you're very much almost part of that community now
2: in a, in a weird way I have to thank the Dubstep world without them I'm certain that I wouldn't be sitting here today having this conversation with you with your listeners <laughs> uh, to, to your side listening it simply wouldn't have happened I was living in a world which was really exclusively a reggae world um, I wasn't living outside of that world. I was happy where I was. But by being invited into this new world w- with whom I've had great interaction and that world has embraced me with such love and such joy and uh, to see and feel the love from these audiences is phenomenal. I mean, my first gig at Fabric was dubbed police and I was as nervous as a kitten. I thought when the lights came up, I was standing on stage. There was no, no one over 22 in the audience. It wasn't a West Indian. It wasn't a Jamaican. It wasn't a black audience. It wasn't a, a reggae audience. It was a dubstep audience. And I said to myself, why did I accept this gig? What am I going to do? I lost for a brief second, a, a moment of confidence failure. It kicked in. I was like, what am I going to do? What, what did I come, what, what am I going? And I just thought, you know what? Relax and enjoy this. I held up a couple of pictures of King Tubby and and I, I signed on with some King Tubby dub plates. I said, look, this is how it used to be. This is what we used to do. I used to go to Jamaica and cut these things at King Tubby. This is a King Tubby. And I just gave a little speech and played some examples. Place went absolutely crazy. It was as though, well, it seemed to me that I was a direct connection between a music that they'd heard of um, and the experience listening, perhaps in their front rooms. But here it was being played in a dance hall in an environment where it wouldn't normally be played but when it played and it dropped they immediately got the connection between dubstep and dub music and reggae and i was able to just i was i was off i was flying i was flying and that hour just flew past me and to see all the people at fabric and casper and james breakage and you know all the people that were there just the people on stage i was i was i really was embraced with such love and i'm very very grateful. To the fraternity for in for making me feel so welcome,
1: and I suppose another thing that's really brought you to a new audience is is YouTube. I, I know everyone who's probably interested in you in my age will
2: know the phrase "I'm going to Sea View Gardens" and know what that is. I know that I I to this day I've. I mean, I guess you could sum up the popularity of that clip by this. I was in Berwick Street Market some time ago and a gentleman walked up to me and said oh my god you're that bloke on View Gardens you're that DJ you're Rodigan and I was a complete stranger and he shook off my hand and he said we use that clip to motivate our salesmen in our sales drives we use it because it reflects someone's commitment passion and just he said the, the energy level in that clip, um, and 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 I said, well, thank you very much. And he walked off, carried on down Berwick Street Market. You know, I'm being used in footage to motivate salesmen. I I don't I can't remember doing that speech. I, 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 at first, I didn't know where it was when I saw it. Then I remembered it was in Birmingham and it was Love Injection. But I, you know, I didn't write that speech. I didn't that that thing just. Came to me. I just now we get the well, I, now we get the blessings, and we now we get the spirit. I would love so much if some door
1: to door salesman came to me one day and came with that deliverance of of, of whatever they'd yeah. been pumped up by by that video.
2: I mean, it, it it it's odd for me, as you can imagine, as I have. I mean, apparently a few years ago when I, when it first became very popular, it's been around. It's been up there a long long time. And somebody said to me, "This is in the sort of Daily Telegraph top five of the most viewed." hits at that period it had the most ridiculous views and um and when i did finally watch it um it's odd to watch yourself because you're not you can't really get what it is that other people get out of it because you're watching yourself so it's odd
1: perhaps moving on to something a little less trivial though um recently you was awarded an mbe you know for your services to broadcasting which in of course is an honor but was it was it tricky to accept that you
2: know obviously an mbe being a symbol of empire, you know, then and- I totally take your point. And yes, I had to seriously consider the implication of that because of empire and what it meant to certain people in certain countries and what it still means. And I had to be mindful of that. Um, we've just heard that the Jamaican government have decided, or there was a movement within the Jamaican government to, to no longer be a part of the Commonwealth, for example. Why did I accept it? I decided to accept it because it was for services to broadcasting. To me, it was for reggae music. To me, it was, I've spent my whole life as a broadcaster broadcasting reggae. I never sold out. I never used it as a vehicle. I always championed the music and I used my position as a broadcaster to try and influence people towards the music and the elements of the music that I've always thought were powerful and strong and worthy of attention so I felt this was um this was significant in that it was for services to broadcasting I'd been and still do broadcast reggae music so if I rejected it then I'm saying well the music I've prayed on or, or is of is is not significant when it is and The biggest response was from Jamaica. It was amazing. The response I had from Jamaicans in Jamaica, particularly in the press in Jamaica. So, um, yes, question mark empire, the West Indies being part of that empire. And we know what happened, the good and the bad. We know where, where this whole thing started and why it started, um, it was a decision I had to give careful consideration to, um, but I decided it was for the benefit and it was for the recognition of the music which I had loved all my life. Services for Broadcasting, reggae music.
1: Fantastic. That's, you know, the press reaction is obviously very much a vindication of, of that exception. You know, it was headline news, was it not? It over was there? indeed. It was yeah.
2: headline news in Jamaica. Fantastic. So
1: I'll ask one final question and this is you know often a question I'll ask you know DJs um, just as a final thing, but with you, it seems like just bad to ask you just what is your favorite record? So I would like to know what is your favorite record,
2: album and a dub version? So very interesting. My favorite record, my favorite album and my favorite dub version. There are there a number of songs that are rushing into my head. Declaration of Rights by the Abyssinians probably still ranks as my all-time favorite. I think it is a magnificent song. It is haunting. And it deals with the trials and tribulations and the journey made by the black man from the motherland of Africa to the slavery and the plantations of the West Indies and what happened to them, and why it was unacceptable. It was a declaration of rights. I think is a very powerful song, and it always will be. My favorite album, I guess I'd have to say it's a close call between Black Heart Man by Bunny Whaler and Catch a Fire, Slave Driver, The Whalers. Steve tried Black Heart Man. Black Heart Man, Bunny Whaler. My favorite album. My favorite dub version. There are a number. I guess The Roots of Dub by King Tubby. Probably. I play it every week on my show. Da da, da 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 da. The Roots of Dub by King Tubby is probably one of my there's another one called Psalms of Dub by King Tubby that I also like but um, yeah let's say Roots of Dub King Tubby
1: I think it's fair to say if any of you don't know any of those records you should get straight to YouTube or get on Discogs because they're sure to be pretty damn good (laughs) (laughs)
3: Sit upon his throne, and he rules us all. Look into the book of life, and you will see that he rules us all.